This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, back at it here on a Friday morning, the 82nd edition of Play-By-Play Cast. My name is Joel Godet, and this is the podcast for Play-By-Play Guys, about Play-By-Play Guys, hosted by a Play-By-Play Guy. Uh, There is no actual... Like, that's not, I haven't, like, trademarked that, by the way. I was having a conversation with uh, my cousins, actually, as a matter of fact, friend of the pod, during during the week this week, and he said, did I change the name of the podcast? And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you, you keep calling it the podcast for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster all the, and I was like, you said it used to be play-by-play guys, and I said I never really thought about it. It just kind of came out that way. So, uh, you know, one way or the other, uh... Play-by-play guys, play-by-play broadcasters, it is the podcast for all of us. Uh, thank you, as always, for clicking subscribe or download or the stream. If you are uh, listening online, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, or wherever, YouTube, if you uh, have found the podcast that way. You can always interact with the pod by finding us on Twitter, at PXPCast. You can find me at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Uh, before we get to today's guest... Personal news, not that anybody comes to this podcast to hear about me, uh, you, you come to hear about the other people, um, but today's a cool day. If you're listening to this podcast on time, uh, I'm doing television tonight, uh, and that'll be fun, um, because I don't get to say that often. I do a lot of television on the web, you know, when I do when I do Ball State stuff, uh, and it's on ESPN3, it's on Watch ESPN, I mean, if you've got a smart TV, I guess you can watch it on television, but it's not TV TV. Uh, tonight, tonight's going to be fun. Uh, Detroit, Wright State, Horizon League men's basketball, if you have nothing else to do on a Friday night, 9 o'clock on ESPNU, uh, it's going to be my first national television game, so I'm a uh, little bit stoked for it, a little bit nervous for it. Uh, hopefully I say some insightful things. There's a good chance I stick my foot in my mouth at some point over the course of two hours. So uh, feel free to listen in, watch in, and uh, and let me know when that happens, because I'm sure someone on Twitter will. So <laughs> so uh, looking forward to it. Super excited. As I record this, it is Thursday night. Not quite sure how much I'm going to sleep until uh, tomorrow, uh, which I need to, because I've got to drive up to Detroit tomorrow. But hey, looking forward to it. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, 9 o'clock Friday night. So 9 o'clock tonight, if you're listening to this uh, on time on ESPNU. Uh, good way to start out 2018. Uh, it's going to be a fun year. It's the, the first of many um, new, not first of many, first of a couple uh, new ventures uh, just for me personally coming up this year. So I'm excited for for all of those in addition to to what I'm doing at Ball State and certainly still uh, love my my time and my job and the people that I work with there and I'm appreciative of uh, of what they allow me to do every single day but uh, that's tonight so looking forward to that on to our guest and it is uh, one of two guests from the Pac-12 network we have on back-to-back weeks here uh, and Schatz will be with us next week and uh, Rich Burke is with us this week 
Uh, he's been with the Pac-12 Network for, oh gosh, um, well, I mean, since its inception. So how long has the Pac-12 Network been around? 2012. So whatever the math is on that, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. He's been with the Pac-12 Network for seven years or somewhere in that vicinity. Uh, before that, he was the voice of the AAA Portland Beavers, the San Diego Padres affiliate. They came to town. He started doing baseball with the Beavers. They left town. He stayed in Portland. Uh, they eventually became the El Paso Chihuahuas, uh, the, the Padres affiliate in the uh, Pacific Coast League, but had a long run doing some AAA baseball. He now does Hillsboro Hops baseball in the Northwest League, short season A-ball, so still gets to kind of dabble in professional baseball. But uh, the majority of his work is Pac-12 Networks and uh, does a variety of sports, a lot of basketball, a lot of Olympic sports. He does the Olympics, by the way, uh, for NBC. We will talk substantially about that here on the podcast. But Rich is one of those guys that is just diversified in what he does um, and does a lot of things very well. So uh, I was curious and interested in having him on the podcast for a lot of those reasons. We will dive into to all of that. And, and you know, I mentioned Mike Cousins earlier um, off the top here. <laughs> Mike and I were talking and, and he said, and, we, and I agreed because I do it all the time. There's nothing worse on a podcast than like the intro because like I always skip through the intro. Like when I listen to Richard Deitch, I skip through the intro. When I listen to... Larry Wilmore, oftentimes I skip through the intro. I try to get right to the interview. When I listen to Sam Roberts' wrestling podcast, oftentimes I skip through the intro. I get right to the interview. Or depending on how I feel, I just go straight to the state of wrestling. Um, So that being said, we're just going to dive right into Rich Burke. Without further ado, uh, we're going to get straight to the interview. Here from Pac-12 Networks is Rich Burke on the 82nd edition of Play by Playcast. I'm blessed to get to do what I do because a lot of people would like to work for Pac-12 Network. And I, I found my way in. I had some connections and, and, and lucky enough to, to get the chance to do it. And so right now I do at least 50 events a year for Pac-12 Network. And I think I've called 10 different sports for them. Uh, not much football. I've done a little bit of football for them. Uh, lots of men's basketball, lots of baseball, lots of volleyball, soccer, swimming, gymnastics, a little bit of softball, a little bit of tennis, um, some wrestling, and not sure what I'm leaving out there, but, <laughs> but that's... Uh, uh, and then um, for NBC, I've done a lot of swimming. I got to call the Olympics for uh, NBC in 2016 for the, the Rio Games, and most people don't realize, but Probably 70% of the announcers that you hear in the Olympics aren't even, weren't even in Rio. They were at the NBC broadcast facilities in Stamford, Connecticut, calling it off a monitor. And it was a great setup. Uh, really, really made it easy for um, the announce teams to, to pull it off. And uh, so that was a great experience. And I, I got to call um, the swimming there for their 4k channel and uh they the 4k was was just coming around at the time and because it was different cameras they needed different announcers they couldn't use dan hicks and rowdy Gaines because they might be talking about something different than what the camera was showing so i got to call the the swimming for their 4k channel along with uh an olympic gold medalist named brendan hansen and then i also got to call um 
uh, a men's basketball game against Argentina, USA against Argentina. I got to call the women's gold medal and bronze medal basketball games. And those were all for the 4K channel. And then for, for regular TV, I got to call uh, race walking and shooting. <laughs> and, and, and that was a blast getting, getting to call them. And then I've, I've done some work for ESPN over the last few years doing the NCAA swim championships. And then last year got to call the, the SEC championships as well. And that's in a nutshell of what, I, what I've done recently. Uh, if I can dissect all of that, uh, we'll, we'll go along the path. Uh, first off, what's cool about doing the amount of stuff that you do and um, not being pigeonholed and kind of having the freedom to, to explore some different things and call some different sports? Exactly that. I, I, get, I love the process of learning a new sport. And I, I first did this. You know, I grew up playing baseball and basketball and grew up watching football. So I knew those sports fairly well. Um, and, and, and in each case, still learning them. But with, and I grew up playing soccer as well. So I knew that sport a little bit, but it was the first sort of new sport that I picked up about a decade ago, um, in, in terms of calling play by play for it and really having to learn more about it. And so I went and, uh, uh, and I've done the same process since then with wrestling and with gymnastics and with volleyball. And I will find a couple of broadcasts from play-by-play announcers that, that I respect, that people in the industry tell me, okay, these people know what they're talking about. And I'll actually log those two broadcasts. And uh, I'll start at the beginning and I'll break it down with a fine-tooth comb and open up a Word document, and I, I will write down things that, that – questions I have. What does this terminology mean? Um, what do they mean when they said this? What's that rule? I don't understand this. Who is that famous player they talked about? And then what, what happens over the course of the, the watching the two broadcasts and breaking it down, I'll end up with somewhere between 10 and 20 pages – of uh, a, a single space document and by the time i'm done with that second broadcast i go back and i look at the first few pages and most of my questions from those first few pages have been answered i've been able to 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 learn enough watching those two broadcasts that i now know oh yeah that's obvious what that rule means i didn't know it a couple of days ago when i started this process but i know what it is now and then only after i've done that Am, am I smart enough to ask intelligent questions? I wouldn't even have known enough about gymnastics to, to ask a decent question at the beginning. But by the time I've gone through this process of, of going through these broadcasts with a fine-tooth comb, now I can ask an intelligent question. And then I'll find somebody I know through connections in the industry who's an expert, and I'll meet with them in person if I can, or if not, talk to them over the phone, and then ask them specific questions about their sport. And, and at that point, I, I, I feel like I know enough to be able to go on the air and get us in and out of breaks and be a traffic cop and not embarrass myself, and most importantly, be able to tee up the analyst with good questions about the about the teams or what's happening in that event or about the sport itself and then over the course of if i get the opportunity to do five or ten broadcasts by the time i i've done say ten of them then i'll know way more than when i started uh 
just through the process of doing the events and, and sitting next to the analyst and, and listening to him or her talk about the sport. And uh, so having done, say, 50 or 60 volleyball telecasts now and starting from nothing, um, I, I'm not an expert on volleyball by any means, but I'm way better off than when I started and I, I, I know enough to be able to um, you know, carry on a semi-intelligent um, volleyball telecast. How do those conversations go with the experts that you find in terms of you know, being able to you know, check your ego in a little bit of a, a way and be able to ask questions and not worry uh, if somebody's going to look at you kind of six ways to Sunday? Well, they're good about it. Uh, most of the time it's, it's uh, somebody that I know. In, in the case of gymnastics, I have a niece who was – um, a, a scholarship gymnast at Southern Utah University. Well, there you go. And <laughs> and so so uh, th- that one was easy um, for volleyball and wrestling. I, I I went to a Division three school at the time when I was there. It was NAIA uh, Pacific University in in Forest Grove, Oregon. Yeah. And so I they they have an excellent wrestling program and 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 a very good volleyball program. And in in that case, I talked to the athletic director who whom I'm good friends with and. Um, you know, on their, I'm on their athletic booster club board of directors and, and he put me in touch with a wrestling coach and the volleyball coach. And, and so I just explained to him at the beginning, Hey, I've, I've got these telecasts coming up here in a couple of months and, and I'm not, uh, I, I, I by no means an expert on the sport, but, um, I've watched my share of it, which in that, at, at that time is true because, you know, I've, I've, I've watched these, these broadcasts and, and, um, broken them down pretty well. I say, you know, I've, I've watched my share of the sport and, and, uh, but I might ask some questions that aren't very intelligent. And, and so I, I sort of inoculate myself at the beginning by saying that. And, and then, and then they understand. So I think the fact that, that I do present it to them in that way and, and that, uh, I have some sort of connection with them to begin with, um, there's no issue. How does one call race walking? <laughs> by by relying a lot on the analyst my analyst was uh, chris maddox who was uh, a, a four-time olympian and uh and he knows the sport very well and he had done the 2012 london games he's, he's from great britain and so by relying a lot on him but it's not a lot different than calling a say a marathon the only True. there's there's just a couple of rules that you need to know about about race walking that 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 make it a walk and not a run and people are DQ'd all the time. And when you hear race walking, why would I want to see people race walk? Well, let me tell you when the Olympics comes around in Tokyo in 2020 circle, the race walking on your calendar, because it is intense. These people, there was a guy, a Frenchman named Johan Diniz, who has won previous events, who was leading this race, who actually collapsed it's a 50-kilometer race, uh, the one I was calling, and he actually collapsed around the 36 or 38-kilometer mark, was passed out right in the middle of the road <laughs> along the beach there in Rio, and, uh, and, and woke up, got back up, and finished the race. <laughs> and and it, I, it was to the point where I'm questioning, should they even be allowing him to do this? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but he did. It was intense. So you call in a sport where you don't really know it, you call it by just staying general and saying who's in the lead. And um, here's the key. I knew 
probably the 20 people who are going to be in the lead or in that front chasing pack. And I did a note card on each of them. And I had a statistician next to me whose sole job was to put the note cards in front of me of the six or eight people who were in the lead or in that chase pack. And if somebody dropped back, that card came out, and the card of somebody else came in if, if they joined them. And so I had those six or eight people right in front of me all the time. And then I also had those same cards in a Word document alphabetically in my hands. So if for some reason somebody was getting lapped and I needed to know some, something about somebody who was, was uh, in 38th place, I, I could go and I, I had them set up alphabetically and I had them set up numerically in two different files, numerically by uh, their bib number. And so uh, it would just take me a moment to be able to reference somebody who wasn't in those chasing packs as the Americans weren't, because uh, Americans aren't very good at race walking. At least, you know, they weren't in 2016. <laughs> and so through the cards in front of me, through the leaders, and through the, the, the two files I had that had all the cards in them, one set up by bib number and one set up alphabetically, I was able to refer to whoever I needed to. And then it's my job just to sort of get background information on them. It's the analyst's job to analyze their form and maybe say some things that he knew about their past that I wouldn't have been able to dig up through my research. And uh, don't try to get too technical. Don't, don't try to explain uh, too much about their form, but know enough just to, to tee up the analyst and ask questions and and that's how you call it. And and it was intense. So, you know, I think a 20K women's race I did came down to the very end. And it was really fun to call. To do race walking and shooting and, and all those uh, kind of niche sports in the Olympics, you know, I know NBC is really big on storytelling, particularly around the Olympics, and being able to, to relay, like you were just talking about, um, more so the stories of who these people are and to get you to, you know, to get people to care about, you know, race walking or you know luge or skeleton you know whatever the sport that you normally wouldn't watch uh is uh what's it like what's different about calling the olympics and calling those sports than it would be about uh something that's more mainstream uh and and do you enjoy the aspect of being able to to be almost more of a storyteller that way i enjoy it very much and my my biggest background is in baseball i've i've called more than 2,000 baseball games and as you know joel calling baseball you're presented with that opportunity to yeah, yeah. to get into stories about the athletes more so than other sports because because there's dead time and people people who don't get baseball people who think baseball is boring don't understand that that aspect well first of all they don't understand they don't understand the intense pitcher hitter battle and what each is trying to do and i think if you understand that you don't think baseball is boring but beyond that even if you don't understand that you like baseball because of the rhythm, because of the opportunity to, to listen to those stories and, and, from my standpoint, to tell those stories. So I have a natural bent toward that anyway. I'm not saying I'm good or bad at it. I have a natural bent toward liking it. And so when I go to the Olympics and, and recognize that people, other than the, the, the very small core audience that follows shooting, they don't care about it, but they want to know that uh, the the American woman who's in the semifinals and her, her husband plays football for the Denver Broncos, they want to know that story. 
They want to know how difficult it was for her to 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 get through the the troubles that she had to even get to the Olympics. They want to know those kind of stories. And 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 to me, and I remember people being critical of NBC about not being true to the sports, and and it's it's all about the stories. Well, I'm sorry, that, that is what it's about. That's why people watch. They want to know the stories of the athletes. When did you when did you start doing the work for Pac-12 Network in particular? Their first year. So and I didn't get many events the first year. Uh, I had done lots of basketball and football play-by-play for for FSN Northwest, which became Root Sports, and then the Pac-12 started its own network, and everybody thought I'd I'd be uh, one of the Northwest guys, and uh, and I was having difficulty. Um, getting much traction there, and I got one men's basketball game uh, the opening night of their very first year in in 2012-2013, and then um, didn't hear much from them, and, and then they got desperate and, and needed somebody to call wrestling, and uh, I called their wrestling championships in 2013, and um, never heard from them one way or the other after that as far as you know whether or not they liked it, uh, and then in the summer of, of 2013, after their first year, they offered me four volleyball matches. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do them. And about two weeks later, they offered me 14 more events. There you go. And so at this point, that was my feedback, that, <laughs> that they started offering me these events. And then um, the, the second year, I got about 30 events. And the third year, I got, I think, 55. And I've been doing about that number ever since. So it was just... Um, uh, a, a, an analyst, a basketball analyst that I had worked with a lot. Um, he uh, had a had an agent. Um, the, the analyst is Lamar Hurd, and um, oh yeah, with the with the yeah. Blazers, yeah, with the Blazers, yes. And and Lamar and I had worked thirty or forty games together and on uh, FSN Northwest and Root Sports, and and was a good friend of mine. And he was looking to for representation and and found an agent back east, and the agent was watching his tape and said, hey, who's the play-by-play guy? And uh, Lamar mentioned my name, and he said, well, find out if he has an agent. And so um, I uh, ended up getting in contact with, with this guy, and he had some ins at Pac-12 Network, and, and that's how I got in. And, and, and without Lamar, I'm not doing this right now. Uh, I owe a lot to him. Well, you, you, you answered the, the question I had a, a little bit there as well, but what, that all being said, what was it like to do even the few games you did at the beginning uh, and be part of a new network uh, and, and to kind of be doing something for the first time and um, experience something that, that itself was, was kind of in its infancy? It was great. It, and what I really appreciated about it from the very beginning, um, the, the two coordinating producers with Pac-12 Network, Kyle Reichling, who handles um, football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, and softball, and Will O'Toole, who handles all the other sports, what they classify as the Olympic sports, they set, they, they made it clear from the beginning there will be no yelling and screaming in the truck. And I've worked with yellers and screamers before, and people who are, uh, and I, I don't mind the intensity of it, but uh, people with Pac-12 Network, the producers, the directors, are, are so laid back, and yet they, they, they care very much about what they do. But 
but uh, they're also chill about it. It really makes it fun. And I noticed that from the beginning without knowing anything about Kyle or Will and without knowing that they had, they had said from the very beginning that this is the way it's going to be. And, um, and I noticed that. I started asking around. They said, oh, yeah, that's by design. And so that made it really fun uh, from the outset. And I've also had the opportunity, and, and it's a weird quirk of mine that I even know this. <laughs> I've had the opportunity o- over, over the last five seasons to, to work with 62 different analysts on Pac-12 Network alone. And, and part of that is a function of calling diff- 10 different sports, and, and part of it may be a function that, you know, once an analyst works with me, they don't want to work with me again. I don't know. But I've, I've worked with 62 different analysts, and it's really been fun getting to know these people and, and work with them, and, and I've developed a lot of good friendships out of it. Um, what, uh, when did you keep, like, did you sit down one day and mark them all out? <laughs> how, how did well, you figure I, out I, it was 62? <laughs> Uh, I, I realized from from the beginning when I started freelancing that I needed to keep track uh, of of things for for financial purposes, keep track of who I'd invoiced and who I hadn't, or um, uh, what expense reports I filled out, what events I had coming up. So I created an Excel spreadsheet that that had the date of the event, the day of the week, who it was where it was, the time of the event, the show code. If you're going to send out an invoice for either the event itself or for the expenses, you've got to have the show code. That's on there. I have whether or not I filled out my travel form. I have whether or not I'm staying in a hotel. I've got the amount I'm supposed to be paid. I've got the amount that I have been paid. I've got the amount that um, I'm supposed to pay uh, my agent. Um, I've got the amount that I'm supposed to expense, whether or not I've filled out that form, whether or not I've been paid for that. And then I just, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I also uh, started writing down the name of the producer, director, the analyst, and whatever sideline reporter there might be. And after after about two years, I was looking at it thinking, man, there, there, have, there are a lot of names on this list. So then I just started keeping track. And, and now... Five years in, I'm, I'm up to, to 62. On Pac-12 Network alone, that doesn't even count the other networks. I've just decided I no longer want to freelance after hearing all of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's rewarding. I, I really like it. And, and it was hard at the beginning, but it's like anything else. Once you get into it, you get into kind of a rhythm. And so now it's, it's, it's no problem keeping track of it. Well, let me go back to, uh, to before all of that started for you as well. And you had mentioned baseball being... Um, the sport you've probably done the most of uh, in your career. Um, if I can start at the end of your baseball career and we'll work backward, um, I, what was it like when, by no fault of your own, all of a sudden you're no longer a AAA baseball broadcaster when the Portland Beavers leave town? I'm assuming we're not going to have too many staunch Portland Beavers fans <laughs> listening to this broadcast. <laughs> but it was great. It was great. And I'll tell you why. And I loved it. I loved every second of doing AAA baseball when I was there at the event. But it's hard being away. It was hard being away from my family. Yeah. And that's I a did tough 10 league. years of AAA baseball. Yes. The Pacific Coast League has the toughest travel of any sports league in the world. This is not a complaint. It's because, as, as I've often said, I, you know, I wasn't traipsing through the desert and nobody was shooting at me. And I was getting to sit down and call a baseball game every day. But it's 144 games in 152 days. 
and you're waking up because uh, according to minor league baseball's rules or the Pacific Coast League's rules, I don't know which, if a team doesn't take the first flight out in the morning, if they don't have the first flight scheduled in the morning, which is generally at 5.45 or 6 a.m., and you miss your flight and you miss a game that night, you have to pay, I think at the time it was $50,000. Oh, boy. So, so to, to cover their own tails, they always schedule that first flight. If you don't schedule the first flight and you miss it, then you got to pay that fine. If you schedule the first flight and travel delays make you, means you don't get there that night, well, then you're off the hook. So you're always flying at 6 in the morning. You're always flying coach. And, um, uh, and then if you're flying back east, you don't even go to the hotel. You get there and you go to the ballpark that, that day. And, and for whatever reason, it seemed almost inevitable that the second day in was, was a day game. And, and so you're not even really getting any rest until the night of your second day in the city. And then after a couple of more games, you pick up stakes and you move on. Again, not a complaint, just a statement of fact. Um, and then it's one thing to be away from your family for six months a year when you're making big league money. It's another thing to be away from them that long when you're making AAA money. And, and even when I'm at home, even when I was at home, it was like I was on the road because the, the, the kids would get up in the morning and go to school and I'd still be asleep. And then by the time they get home from school at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm already at the ballpark that night. So it was the rare, the rare day game when I would even get to see my family much at all. And, and so with, with my son, my son at the time was seven years old when the Portland Beavers played their last home game in 2010. And Joel, that last that last broadcast after doing ten years of AAA baseball, knowing that there would be no more on the post game show, it's almost embarrassing now. But I wasn't embarrassed by it at the time. I sobbed on the air for like forty five minutes, <laughs> just going through the history of, of of the last ten years. We had this whole hour long retrospective that we did after that last broadcast, talking about the last ten years and playing highlights from those games, and and the final goodbyes were hard. And uh, interesting story, my broadcast partner at the time, Tim Haggerty, who still does El Paso Chihuahuas play-by-play, and by the way, would be an excellent interview for you on these podcasts, really thoughtful guy about the art of play-by-play itself, excellent broadcaster. Um, Tim Haggerty was there with me. Did he ever leave, by the way, or did he go straight? He went with the team to Tucson and then to El Paso, right? Went with the team to Tucson and El Paso, okay. yes. But after the, after the whole game was over, this is just a tangent here for you, and, and all the fans have left, and I'm up there cleaning up the radio equipment, and my son, who was seven years old at the time, had worn, it was his first year playing baseball, and had worn his t-ball uniform to the game, and was down on the field running around on the bases, and Tim elbows me as we're cleaning up the equipment, and he's he's looking down at the field, and he says, do you realize that this is the final baseball game that will ever be played in this stadium your son is the is the last person ever to wear a baseball uniform on the field in this stadium and i thought wow that's something uh but anyway what led me off to the tangent is that was my son's first year playing baseball not only did i not get to coach his team but i didn't even get to go to any games i think i saw him play once and so i knew the time was coming that I was going to have to back off doing AAA baseball, 
probably would have done one more season full time, and then what I would have then I would have done what Dean Ellis had done in Des Moines and do home games only. Um, and uh, uh, but the fact that it left and the fact that I was getting a lot of freelance TV gigs at that point, I didn't need AAA baseball anymore. So while I missed it, at the same time, it was an excellent thing for my family. And, uh, and then I starting, I, I got to coach my son's, uh, baseball team for seven seasons after that. And including a couple of fall baseball seasons. And it, it was, it was great. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love those AAA years, but I really loved when I, I wasn't doing that anymore. That's interesting. And, and it, it's interesting. You brought up when the TV work started to, to kind of flow in for you. Cause my first reaction when, when I thought about talking to you for this, I was like, I, I wonder like the, the incredible fear I would have had, and maybe that's just like life experience and, um, you know, where you were at uh, personally and professionally at that time. Like my, my thought would have been this like undying fear of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? How am I going to put food on the table? Um, so it was interesting to hear the, the kind of different perspective of, of how that all fell out for you. Yes. Well, I'm, 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 I told you I'm blessed and I, I'm blessed in a way that I haven't mentioned and that I have a, a wife who number one, likes baseball, <laughs> likes sports. And uh, and is has been really patient with his career, but there were years and years there, Joel, where I wasn't making much money. And not only was she understanding, but she was gainfully employed um, in, in working for for a great company. And it it was because of that it, that's a big reason why I was able to continue doing what I was doing and kind of fighting my way through it. Um, and, until a time when, and, and frankly, TV pays way better than radio does, <laughs> way better than radio does. And without her patience with me and without her income, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So when I talk to young broadcasters, and I've been married for 28 years, and it's the best thing in my life. Um, but when I talk to young broadcasters, I say, if you want to stay in this business, you got to and, and, and work your way up. You got to do one of three things. First of all, you got to be very lucky and and get a big break at the beginning and make it big early on, which is unlikely to happen. Which leaves the other two possibilities: number one, stay single, uh, and then and then the other one is if you're going to get married, have somebody who's really really understanding and and who's in it with you for the long haul. Yeah. That's the only way it's going to work. Otherwise, what's going to happen is um, you know, the, the marriage is going to come to an end, um, which is far worse than, than the other option, which is your broadcasting career is <laughs> going to come to an end. You're going to have to do something where you make some money. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because in all of that pursuit, you did still make it to the major league level in your time uh, in baseball as well. And I do want to ask about getting that opportunity. Um, what was it like for you? And what do you remember still to this day? Uh, because I think your first major league game was in San Juan, if I've got that right, um, doing a major league game for the Expos. I had done a couple of spring training games for the Padres in 2003 and working alongside Jerry Coleman. Uh, Jerry Coleman with the Padres, legendary broadcaster, uh, more known for his foibles than for <laughs> put a star on that one. Um, Jerry was a master of the malapropism. 
know, uh, Winfield goes back, back, hits his head against the wall. It's rolling back toward the infield, that kind of thing. You know, Rich Folkers is throwing up in the bullpen. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of thing that, that Jerry Coleman is, is well known for across the nation. In San Diego, they know him for, for being the guy that came, came in, into their homes and their cars for decades and who was passionate about his Padres and who was excellent at the big moments. And he treated me like I was a king. Here I was this guy from AAA coming up to do two spring training radio broadcasts. And he acted like he'd known me forever and was extremely complimentary off the air and on the air. I, I, could, I could not have been treated nice. He, he, that, that's my takeaway from those games. Uh, another takeaway I have from, from those games is that sometimes serendipity is with you. And my, my first, the, the first batter I ever called at the major league level, interleague play at the Peoria Sports Complex, it was uh, uh, Padres against the, I think it was the White Sox in 03. And uh, the first batter for the White Sox was a guy named, I want to say it was Josh Schroeder. And, uh, and there was a, like a late lineup change and he was a guy that they had just brought over from the minor league complex. And I happened to notice maybe five minutes before we went on the air and there was no information on him. Wasn't even on the roster. So I went <laughs> ran over to the, to the White Sox broadcasters. I, I can't remember who they were. And I said, who is this guy? And, and they said, oh, and they did a little digging. It's okay. That's Josh Schroeder. Otherwise, the first batter I ever called at the major league level, I wouldn't even have known who he was. <laughs> so serendipity was with me that day. But then the next year, uh, I got to call games for the Expos in Puerto Rico. And um, uh, Elliot Price was the play-by-play announcer, and, and, and they, they needed uh, uh, somebody else to come in and work with him. And so I was fortunate to get the chance to do that. And a lot of credit goes to Brett Dolan, who would be another great guy for you to, to interview. He's the uh, voice of the Arkansas Razorbacks now, and he did eight or ten years with the Houston Astros. And, and he had been doing games for the Expos, and he's the one who told me, yeah, you know what, they, they because the Expos had, had been bringing lots of people in throughout the season to Montreal, for 2003 and 2004 seasons to work with Elliot, and they needed uh, somebody in Puerto Rico, and he told me a couple of months ahead of time. And so this is while, and Brett was at the time doing play-by-play for the Tucson Sidewinders, and it was the first day of a series when Tucson was in Portland, and so I fired off an email to, to Montreal, and by the end of that four-game series, I had that gig and <laughs> wouldn't have gotten it without, without Brett Dolan. So I went down there, and I, I called 10 games, and interesting thing I found out about that it w- was that, and I don't know why, Major League clubhouses were way more laid back than AAA clubhouses. That's interesting. I don't know what it is, but uh, guys, guys up there are, are, are much looser. And it, it, may be, it may be that odd Petri dish of a AAA clubhouse where you've got the, the veteran guys who – uh, aren't happy to be in AAA and, and the up and coming guys who spend a little time in, in big league spring training and, and think they should be in the big leagues. Uh, and then you've got those, the, the organizational guys who are sort of roster fillers who uh, never thought they'd even get as far as AAA and they happen to be there. And so it's an odd mix, but 
I found major league clubhouses with the, the four teams I dealt with, the Expos and the Braves and the Pirates and the Blue Jays, to be much more laid back. Um, interviewed the late Roy Halladay when I was there, and we sat in the clubhouse. And um, I would never do a AAA interview in the clubhouse uh, I, because um, I, I, I did a few of them where we were bothered by other players and, and and antics and such. And, and I, when I was in the big leagues, I, I said, ask Halliday for an interview. And he said, yeah, let's do it right here. So we down on, sat down on a couple of stools and, and nobody bothered us. And he was as good a guy as could be. And, um, yeah, so th- those are my takeaways from that experience. And, and, uh, and getting to call games in, in, in another country, uh, 4th of July of 2004, I called a game in Puerto Rico between two Canadian teams. <laughs> That's uh that that can't be something that happens too often. That's no. a that's a trivia question yeah. answer right there for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, the start of your baseball career, though, I found fascinating as well, um, because that's something that I feel like would not uh, maybe maybe we're getting back kind of coming back around to the point in time where it would happen again. Um, but selling concessions and doing the radio simultaneously. Uh, can you tell me your your first year with the Bend Bucks, uh, what that was like, and and how you made that work, and if anything ever went horribly wrong for you, where is humorous looking back on it? <laughs> I was part of a five person staff. There was the owner, his wife, the general manager, who uh, was Bob Hards, who later went on to do play-by-play in Midland, Texas for the Texas League team there. It might still be doing it as far as I know. And uh, he was the GM. And then the, the owner and his wife, their son, was, was sort of an assistant. And then I was the administrative assistant. And I was right out of college. And I got to do two winnings of play-by-play at the home games. And, Joel, it was the worst play-by-play you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> and it was frustrating because – I knew what I wanted to say. I'd been listening to baseball all my life and had, had never really tried it much. Unlike most people in this industry, I, I didn't grow up turning the sound down on the TV and practicing play-by-play. I, the thought never crossed my mind that I was, I was going to be doing play-by-play. Yeah, I thought I'm, I'd in be, that, I'm in that boat, too. So Okay. I thought I'd be playing. And even I was college, not in I that played, boat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I, I, I even I played... I played uh, NAIA baseball, and uh, anybody else, looking back on it, anybody else would have said, there's no way you have no chance, but I thought I did. Um, and uh, it was my my junior college baseball coach who put the light on my head that said, you should go up to Pacific University. I was playing junior college baseball in Southern California, and he said, he had some ties up here. Go up to Pacific University, and you can play baseball, and you can be the voice of the boxers for football. And as it turned out, that's exactly the way it worked out. It's like a light bulb went out above my head. Oh, sports casting, not a bad idea. And then it was my baseball coach at Pacific, a guy named Chuck Buffero, who put me in contact with the, with the team in Bend. And right out of college, I got to do their play-by-play. And I hadn't done, I hadn't even, I'd done a, some of it in college, but almost no baseball. And so I knew what I wanted to say, but it wasn't coming out right now. I was so frustrated, but the, the experience of that summer was amazing. So I would, my job was to do play by play of the fourth and fifth innings at the home games. But during the first three innings, I had to 
service the concession stands, bring them ice, bring them hot dogs out of the freezer. Uh, I would have to drive across town. I would have to drive across town to get ice um, when we on the big nights when we were running low. And and during this time, I had my little Walkman radio with the with the Steve Bartman esque over the year over the years headset. And I would keep track of Bob Hart's play-by-play while I was doing. Anytime something would happen, I would stop, set the ice buckets down, one in each hand, get out my little tiny scorebook in the in the little Mead memo pad that I had made my, for myself that had only five innings in the scorebook because that's all I needed, the first three innings plus the two innings that I called. And I'd write down the play. I'd stick it back in my pocket, pick up the buckets of ice, continue my walk to the concession stand, dump them in, and then write down the next play. And then when it was time for the, you know, in the in the bottom of the third inning, I'd go up and, and sit down when there were two outs, and then the fourth inning would come, and I'd call the two innings of play-by-play. And then basically I could forget about, I didn't have to keep track of the rest of the game because I had other duties to do, um, and I didn't have to write them down in the scorebook because I was done with play-by-play for that day. Um, and, and that was it. That was my summer. And uh, two innings of play-by-play at the home games, and I got to, Bob got laryngitis one day, and I got to call an entire game, <laughs> and and it was the most ragged thing you've ever heard, but I got through it, and um, then then over the next, uh, I was getting married the next uh, the next off season, and over the next five years, um, I worked for a sporting event management company, Peter Jacobson Productions, because I didn't want to have to move around like a play-by-play announcer normally has to do. Yeah to stay in the industry. And, and I didn't want to do that at the outset of my marriage. So I worked for a sporting event management company, a professional golfer. We managed golf tournaments in the Portland area. And um, during that time, I did play-by-play uh, for the University of Portland's baseball team on the radio and uh, got a lot better. And then went back to Ben um, six years later, this time as the number one guy, did one year there. And then um, that team moved to Portland as the um, – uh, as a, a short season A ball team, and I was there for six years, and then uh, AAA baseball came, and 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 uh, I got to to work my way up the ladder without ever having to move. Which is an, I mean, an, an interesting and unique way that the the career kind of get gets built for you as well. And it, I, I guess it's a a show of faith. I don't know, faith in yourself that hey, like it's possible to stick in one place and do the right things, and and good things open the right doors for you. I guess if that makes sense. As much as we all get worried about where that next job is going to take us, sometimes uh, you let it play out and you, d- you do your own thing and uh, you wind up in the right place eventually, don't you? Right. Yes. It's about being patient. Last night I did an Oregon State basketball game, and Oregon State center is Drew Eubanks. And, and they have been talking to him about not trying to do much, do too much. You know, Stay underneath, let the ball find you. And it's it's funny when he does that. How often the ball finds him, yeah, and there he is for for a pretty easy bucket. It's the same. It's the same thing in life. You know, if you sometimes if you're just patient, things find you. And 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 I've been fortunate enough to where that's happened for me. And we when the when the we went to school in the Portland area. I told you to, at uh, an NAIA school. Now it's Division Three, Pacific University. And and my wife started working over here at the time we got married. And I was working with the sporting event management company. And then the summer of '94, I was back four hours away in Bend doing doing play-by-play for them. This time as the number one guy. Well, uh, the AAA Portland Beavers had moved to Salt Lake City, and so there was no baseball here. 
and the team and the team and Ben got the right to move their team there. And October '94, I I moved to Portland uh, as as the new Portland Rockies play-by-play announcer, and we bought a house. And you know, here it is, all these years later, and and we still live in the same house, and and, and I've never moved. Well, Rich, if people want to uh, watch you or get a hold of you on social media, one of those things, uh, how, do they, how do they go about finding you? Uh, well, on social media, it's uh, at Rich Burke one the numeral one. There's no Ian Burke. And uh, yeah, they can email me at rich at richburke.com. And uh, I have my own website, richburke.com. I haven't updated it uh, too much recently. I, I need need to redo it. Um but you can then, get the Richburg uh, baseball scorebook there too. Yes, yes, you can. I have my own line of baseball scorebooks, which which has been great. And you're the, uh, you're the yeah, Bob the, Carpenter the, competitor. Uh, <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. There's uh, he, he's he's more well known. More people use his, uh, but I have a segment of the population out there that that uh, swears by mine. <laughs> and and so yeah, uh, I don't I don't mind being number two to Bob at all. <laughs> how did you? By, by the way, before I let you go, how did you? come to the i mean decide to sell it decide like hey this could catch on uh, what what about yours works for you um because i do like i do my own too i've always been one that you know has my own unique quirks but can you kind of uh, give me the, the 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 story on why you do what you do on that front and, and what gave you the idea to turn it into a little side business i had used other score books and they didn't suit me because they were too structured my score books are more more open and you can you can, rather than having to put um, certain things in certain spots, you can sort of put what you want where. But also, I wanted a way to keep track of pitches, more so than uh, one of the one of the scorebooks out there has like five boxes, three for balls and two for strikes, and that wasn't enough for me. So I wanted my own way to keep track of pitches, and so just came up with my own without ever any thought of. Of, of selling it to anybody. And um, I'm pretty good with graphic design. That's one of the things I did for the sporting event management company was I was their graphic designer. And so I designed my own layout that, and um, began using it. And, and I had a couple of people tell me, Hey, you know, this is good. Can I borrow that? And I said, sure. And I'd print them off a sheet and they'd go make their own copies. And then somebody said one time, you know, you should publish that. And I said, well, I wouldn't know how to get started. And then a friend of mine was, working for a self-publishing company in the mid-2000, Lulu.com, which is now the publisher of my scorebooks. And uh, he was telling me about this. He was one of their West Coast sales representatives. And I thought, wow. Uh, and it was, it was, the biggest thing about, about it is that there's no money up front. All you got to do is make a, make a PDF file of your book and upload it. And if somebody buys it, be it a baseball scorebook or a novel or a calendar or whatever, somebody buy it. Lulu takes a cut. You get a cut. There's no money up front. Oh wow! And and they and they print them one at a time. Somebody buys it. It doesn't get printed until somebody buys it. Interesting. And uh, yeah, check it out. Lulu.com. It's, if you have any ideas for any kind of novel or or uh, or a nonfiction book or or anything, go there and and it's it's a really really good service. And so in, in February of 2007, I, I uploaded these various uh, scorebooks, some for broadcasters, some for just fans. And um, other than a little bit of marketing, I, I, was, um, I, I had some advertising at, at 
uh, at a place that most of your listeners know, SDAA.com, sure. with John Chelesnik, and, and uh, that that was good. And then finally decided that, that you know what, I, I didn't want to didn't want to make that investment in it anymore. People just, I'm, I'm hopeful hopeful that people find it through word of mouth and. And uh, but the advertising there was great. That helped it a little bit. But rather, other than a little bit of marketing and and occasionally sending out a tweet about it, I've hardly done any work since 2007 on it because they're just up there and people buy them and and um, and every quarter they send me a check. And you know I've I've sold I don't know maybe a thousand maybe 1,200 of them over the years. And without hardly doing any work, it's 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 like I'm getting free money. You know what it does? It pays. Pays for my web hosting. There you go. Yeah. All right, that's Rich Burke joining us here on Play by Playcast. Don't you just want to go call race walking right now? Like, if you don't listen to this podcast and go, gosh, I want to try calling race walking. Like, we're in the wrong field here, folks. (laughs) Like, I just... One of my, and I've said this many times on the podcast, one of my goals in, in broadcasting and in life is to broadcast an Olympic Games. And it just... Like sitting there listening to Rich talk about like clay shooting and and race walking and what goes into broadcasting that stuff just fascinated me. So uh, hopefully you guys took uh, out of that what I did as well. If you want to check out Rich Burke's website, by the way, uh, he talked at the end about uh, his scorebook. Uh, you can find Rich Burke's website and he sells the scorebooks there at richburk.com. That's R-I-C-H-B-U-R-K, richburk.com. And then he mentioned self-publishing as well, which is cool. I didn't know about this. Lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, where I would presume you can also find uh, Rich Burke's scorebook. But, I mean, if you've got stuff you want to publish yourself, like essays on world domination, uh, knock yourself out. Uh, Lulu.com, really cool resource. Uh, that that I'm glad Rich brought up here on the podcast. Uh, anyway, uh, that'll do it for us here on this edition of Play by Playcast. Until next week, when Ann Chats will stop by, which will be a really cool conversation. First of all, second female broadcast we've had on the podcast, um, and we dive into some of the trailblazing nature of her career because she was the first female sports anchor in two different markets ever. So Ann, we'll talk a little bit about that. She'll talk about Tanya Harding. Uh, and going to Lillehammer for the Olympics without a credential uh, and and still getting an interview and becoming like a, a sensation while she was there because of it. Um, and much more with Ann Schatz next week here on PXP Cast. Uh, but for now, we are out of time. Marshmallow is playing and I've got a good drive to Detroit. So uh, 9 o'clock ESPNU, if you have nothing else to do on a Friday, look forward to seeing you. And uh, right back here again next week as well on Play by Playcast. Cast.